Did you know that women are more likely than men to face barriers accessing substance use treatment and are less likely to seek treatment? Welcome to Mind the Health Gap, a podcast from Women's College Hospital Foundation that brings together experts across all disciplines of care to discuss the gender gaps that exist in our healthcare system, ranging from gaps in gender-specific research to information to care, which all have an impact on the health and lives of women. My name is Jennifer Bernard, and I will be your host today. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Jennifer Wyman to discuss the unique impacts of substance use disorders on women and how that can inform and change the care they receive. Dr. Jennifer Wyman is the Associate Medical Director of the Substance Use Service at Women's College Hospital and a medical educator at Medify. She has spent her career working in primary care and addictions and is interested in improving care pathways for people with substance use disorders through education, resource development, and advocacy. Hello, Dr. Wyman. It's so great to have you here. This is such an important subject that I think is often overlooked and neglected. We're talking about substance use today. You know, we're going to start right at the beginning because language has so much power and words have so much power. So let's talk about what we are, the title of substance use itself. There are many ways that, you know, substance use has been described and a lot of them have been harmful and really stigmatize people. And there's a lot of complexity around labels and the language we use. Let's start there. Why do we use the words substance use and not some of the other terms that I think people associate with this area? Well, similarly, I'll jump right in and call out some of those terms you're referring to um, just for the sake of contrast, I think. Uh Um, And when I say, you know, that we used to call someone uh, an addict or a junkie or a user, mm. I think it really highlights why it's so important that we refer to a person who has a substance use disorder. And the really important thing is that this is called person first language. It's used across uh, many types of medical diagnoses and conditions and, and disabilities, right? We don't want to talk about the person as their disability. We're talking about someone who has a health condition, maybe a chronic health condition, who is on a journey and has lots of complexity and they need to be not defined by their substance use. And that's seen in the medical literature as well in that we don't talk about addiction. We talk about substance use disorders in light of newer diagnostic criteria and terminology. I love that because, you know, if somebody has cancer, you don't say, oh, there's the cancer victim coming in or, you know, here comes, you know, a person with cancer. You talk about a person having cancer. It's a they have the disease. They are not the disease. So I think that that putting it in that context is so important. I think it's so important to highlight that even within the healthcare community, we're so unconscious, I think, about how our language is connected to stigma and bias and reinforces that. So even if most people would never call someone 
a user or a junkie. There's so many other terms that are used. Right. Clean or dirty. Oh, right? yeah. Dry or not. Talk about, you know, labeling and judging. Right. It is labeling and judging. And, you know, there's so much sort of unconscious bias, you know, unconsciously we put people in categories. Let's talk about women. And we know that substance use is not unique to women. We know anyone can be afflicted by it, but many women are. And there are unique barriers that women have and unique risks. So let's talk about some of those barriers and risk factors and why women, you know, have substance use disorders that are really misunderstood. Well, there's so much to to dig into there. I think, you know, in terms of how women experience substance use, there are factors that are related to biology. So we talk about sex and gender, right? So what about our physiology, our neurobiology makes us experience substance use differently? And I think we know more about that with respect to alcohol than some other substances. And then there are gender issues around gender norms and how women view alcohol, how women who have challenges with alcohol are viewed. And then I think to your point, some of the things around barriers to treatment. Uh And I think, again, there's so much to talk about, but one of the things that is a challenge is trying to understand the intersection of those sex and gender factors and thinking in particular about mental health, trauma, reproductive health, and how all of those things impact a woman's likelihood to seek and engage in care. I think we saw a lot of the complexity around women's roles come to the surface during COVID when being a caregiver took on so many different facets. You know, people were teachers and taking care of elderly people, taking care of you know, their their children, they were taking care of themselves. They were, we know women were on the front line and there still seems to be a lot of stigma around, you know, even identifying that you need help or that you're having a problem as a woman. And you've touched on one of those times that I think there is the greatest stigma during pregnancy. I mean, the intersectionality of, you know, maybe having a substance use problem and also perhaps finding out that you're pregnant must be almost overwhelming for so many women. And then if you layer on, you know, socioeconomic status and other issues, I can imagine how many walls are going up in in front of that woman who really needs to get some support. Can you talk a little bit, a little bit about some of the stigma that socioeconomic status and, you know, people who are more vulnerable faced in this area? For sure. So maybe starting with pregnancy and then thinking about, you know, sort of later in those child rearing and parenting years when women are carrying so much responsibility for their families. So during pregnancy, you're absolutely right. We look at it as a key moment for change, right? Women who are struggling with substance use, whether it's alcohol or opioids, are often facing a lot of shame in terms of acknowledging their substance use. They're afraid of being labeled, I think, and not getting appropriate care um, within the healthcare system. They might be afraid of, you know, even child protection concerns. Right. But it's also one of those great moments where we can really, you know, offer, offer medication care, offer psychosocial supports, offer sometimes the wraparound supports that will really make a difference and help someone 
make choices that are going to be healthier for them, for their baby, and get them onto the right footing. So thinking about racialized women and marginalized women, there's a whole history of issues to do with child protection and stigma around that you can imagine would impact someone's willingness to come forward and try to be proactive. And then thinking about women accessing care when they also have to think about childcare, right? right? When they've got to get themselves somewhere and programs, you know, at least now there are more things that are virtual, (laughs) but historically they've required someone to attend appointments in person, often multiple appointments for individual and group counseling. And how do you do that when you've got kids to look after or get to school or you've got a job, right? You know, who's going to look after your children to do that? And then of course, there are all of the issues around what is covered within our healthcare system and what's not. And so this applies to so many people, but you know, our health system covers medications basically and, and attending with a physician and so much of what's important around psychosocial supports requires payment or has huge waiting lists in terms of access to mental health and substance use care. We're going to talk about another area that intersects with substance use, which is violence. And, you know, during the pandemic, everybody went home and we were locked inside. And, you know, so many people said to me, oh, it's so great that, you know, I never have to leave home. I love not commuting. And I I remember having a conversation with a friend who had gotten out of a very violent marriage and she said these words to me and I've never forgotten them. And she said, home is not safe for everyone. So true. And it's so important that we realize that violence is a part of many women's lives. And it often violence against women is a huge risk factor. And one of the issues around substance abuse that, you know, can help manifest that. And there are so many ways that violence and substance abuse are connected. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and what we're seeing here at Women's? Because we not only have a robust substance use treatment program, we also run a program that intervenes on sexual assault and domestic violence. So we see so much of this here. Such an important point. Alcohol use is associated with violence. So obviously with with accidents and trauma and all kinds of things. And there is no no formula for thinking about how many drinks in a direct relationship, um, except to say it seems that the more alcohol is consumed, the more risk of violence there is. And we think about intimate partner violence and sexual assault. We think about alcohol and how it affects the person who's drinking and their likelihood of perpetrating violence and alcohol and the risk of being a victim of violence. And it's all associated. Alcohol is problematic for all of that. Mm -hmm. So in the intimate partner setting, it's more often the male partner perpetrating violence against the female partner, but not exclusively by any means. And increased alcohol appears to be associated with that increased risk of violence. Again, whether the partners are, are same sex or not same sex. And then Increased alcohol use is associated with being a victim of violence as well, particularly both sexual violence um, and other types of violence as well. And one of the areas that we see this a lot and that's so concerning is with young women. And there's so much to be said about young people and their drinking patterns and binge drinking for both women and for men. And again, uh, both the sex and the gender issues that have to do with violence against women. But there is a recognized association between drinking uh, and being the victim of sexual violence from a known or an unknown partner. 
So it sounds like there are some unique intersectionalities, obviously, with women. What's the research like in this field in terms of really, you know, desegregating sex and gender and looking at women differently than men? I think that a lot of research has focused on looking at biology and sex differences. Mm -hmm. Some has focused on looking at risk factors. Mm -hmm. There is emerging evidence looking at things like uh, the differences in mental health and substance use concurrences and the differences between how women and men drink in that regard. But in terms of looking at how that translates to treatment and what will help someone to engage in treatment and what kinds of treatment modalities uh, might be more effective for women, I think there are huge gaps there. We know a little bit about the medications and how the medications compare in terms of effectiveness. But medications are a very important part of treatment and only one component of effective treatment for substance use, right? It's addressing mental health. It's looking at psychosocial supports around managing triggers, relapse prevention. There's a, a long history of uh, group type treatment, peer support treatment for women. A lot of that came originally from the world of AA, <laughs> which was needless to say, started by men, uh, initiated and sort of controlled by men for a long time. And it really wasn't widely acknowledged in the community that AA did not feel like a safe place for women for a long time. Right. So it's taken a really long time for there to be a sort of side movement of women's only groups in AA, but also other kinds of groups for women, particularly groups that look at the intersection of trauma and substance use. So that's been really important. Well, you've, you've led me right to my next line of question. This area, as we've said right off the top, is fraught with complexity. That's why, you know, meeting people where they are and really having that person first experience is so, so important. Let's talk a bit about trauma. And there's some really startling and, and quite tragic, you know, stats around this. So it plays such an important role in substance use because unfortunately, one in three women will experience trauma in their life. And we know, as you've alluded to, intimate partner violence plays a huge role in this. And women who've experienced, you know, trauma go on to have, you know, multiple issues, which can include substance use and mental illness. So let's talk about some of the effects and of trauma on substance use together. And let's talk about some of the things that we're doing to try to help people with this part of the journey. Thanks for opening that up to really, I think, kind of potentially a new understanding of what trauma is and looks like. I think that many people imagine trauma in the way that they see it in the media. It's it's a sexual assault. It's, you know, murder. It's an earthquake. It's being involved in war. And it's all of those things. Mm -hmm. But a broader way of thinking about trauma is the experience of something that overwhelms a person's ability to cope. Okay. And in the world of uh, mental health and starting more broadly in the world of healthcare, we're really becoming aware of something called adverse childhood experiences. So in addition to things like intimate partner violence and sexual assault, 
there's a whole host of things that affect people in their childhood that they obviously don't have control over, mm-hmm. but sort of bear the burden of going forward. So growing up in a home where there was violence and being witness to violence, um, having unstable housing, you know, irregular access to basic security, whether that's food or relationships, mm-hmm. parents in and out of jail. There are many others. And it's been shown that there is a very direct relationship between the number of adverse childhood experiences that someone uh, is exposed to and their risks of developing a mental health disorder, a substance use disorder, many different kinds of medical disorders um, and suicide and early death. Well, this is so uh, important to really uh, illuminate because I think a lot of people have been hearing things like the words that, you know, really associated with this area, intergenerational trauma. Just because the trauma happens to one person in a family doesn't affect multiple people in that family. Can you talk a little bit about how intergenerational trauma affects people? Sure. So I think one way to maybe understand it is that if as a child, you grew up in a situation where your parents were dealing with mental health or medical issues or various kinds of instability on their own, they may not have had the capacity to be able to parent in the best ways possible. That may create longer term issues with attachment, with sense of safety, with learning healthy coping mechanisms, whether that has to do with, you know, managing school, dealing with authorities. There's such a cascade of things that come from being in unstable or insecure environment that affect an individual's not just sense of self, but of ability to navigate all of the social structures that are sort of core to functioning in a a standard or, you know, kind of neurotypical way. And so if someone has had those challenges growing up, then you can begin to imagine how it affects their parenting and how that can affect the safety and attachment and all of the things that come from that, you know, those really core experiences in early childhood going forward. And I, I feel inadequate to, to you know, be the one to speak about um, intergenerational uh, trauma and Canada's Indigenous communities, but I hope that's something that you'll be talking about more broadly. I mean, that, that would be sort of the, the ultimate example of intergenerational trauma. Exactly. Dr. Wyman, any specific examples of a a gap in research that you'd like to to share with our audience? I actually just learned recently that there's research that shows that the timing of uh, starting nicotine replacement and planning smoking cessation really matters in terms of a woman's menstrual cycle. And that trying to get someone to quit smoking just in the days leading up to their period and starting their period is much less successful than starting it in the first part of their cycle. I actually had no idea about this (laughs) until a week ago. And it made me think about how many gaps there are in thinking about the knowledge. And we know so little about you know, when to initiate treatment for alcohol or opioid use disorder in light of those kinds of hormonal factors. 
While the hormonal factors continue to be under-researched and play such a significant role. So it's amazing that we might be able to use this little inflection point and apply that to some of the other substances that are commonly used. But in a way, it makes complete sense that, you know, once again, it's the sex and gender lens and who's asking the questions and what are you looking for? And are you looking for those patterns across many areas? So wonderful, wonderful. That's good news that we now have an inflection point to use. At least for that one area. Absolutely. Let's end on what we hope is a bit of a more hopeful part of our conversation, which has been so, so riveting. You know, we at Women's College Hospital that really um, tries to scale and spread care well beyond our walls. And one of the ways we do it in this area is through our RAM clinic. And I'm going to let you be the one to sort of explain what that acronym means. And, you know, we're very proud of this um, sort of innovation in the substance use area, which we really took hold of many years ago to really make sure that every Ontarian in particular has access to care. Thank you for that opportunity because I'm really passionate about this model of care. So RAM, R-A-A-M, stands for Rapid Access Addiction Medicine. And the RAM model is really intended to put the person first. Historically, if people wanted to access care, they really didn't know where to go. They might ask their family doctor who didn't know where to send them. They might go to the hospital and get some medication and get told to go find a clinic, but they didn't know, you know, where to show up. So the RAM is a place that someone can access almost like a walk-in or acute care, sort of urgent care kind of setting. And it can be for any type of substance use, alcohol, opioids, coke, benzodiazepines, where they can see a counselor, they can see a physician or nurse practitioner as a prescriber. And on that very first visit, they can help to get started, at least on figuring out what that path is. So if medication is appropriate, it can often be initiated on the first visit. And then they can get linked to other supports, both within the hospital in terms of mental health and other supports and community supports as well. The RAM at Women's was one of the first five uh, in Ontario that were run as a pilot project with funding from Ontario Health. And we're really proud of that and of Dr. Melkahan, who was the uh, founder of the Substance Use Clinic and the RAM Clinic, and really led a pilot project that has showed that RAM care reduces barriers, but also actually reduces the likelihood that people end up in emergency departments or, or hospitalized within months of their first visit. And the RAM model has actually been turned into a provincial model, which is now um, sort of, I don't want to say managed because that's too strong a word, but linked to Medify, an organization that also has its home at Women's College that provides support um, and guidance to over 70 RAMs across the province and develops new guidelines, educational um, resources, does advocacy for care related to people with substance use challenges right across the province. So women's is our home and we're very proud of that and very happy about that partnership. We are very proud and that that spreading out and going into smaller communities, you know, where, you know, again, people don't have access to University Avenue here in Toronto with, you know, huge academic centers. You know, I love the fact that in our clinic, you know, people can walk into the hospital 24 hours a day. 
or ambulatory. So you don't have to stay overnight. You don't have to check in. You talked about some of those barriers that keep women away from care. You know, I can't stay overnight. You know, I have nowhere to leave my children. I've run over on my lunch hour. This is the only time I have to even, you know, come here. So I love this idea of meeting people where they are and not expecting, you know, the the folks that need this care to conform and also being out in the communities right across the province. You know, one of the things that we haven't touched on is, you know, the types of substance use that are most common. People think that, uh, you know, going back to how we started, the vision that we have of somebody that is, you know, suffering with substance use is that old fashioned, that junkie. But it could be the person sitting in the desk next to you at work. It could be somebody sitting next to you at, at the bus and it can actually be somebody in your own home. So can you talk just a little about a bit about sort of normalizing who and, and, and the types of substance abuse that, you know, we see here at Women's? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it could be someone in your book club, right? I mean, it, it can be your, your colleague, your coworker, your family member. So here at the RAM, we see women and men, and we see people from all different communities. I, I feel like I've overly limited myself, but in terms of inclusiveness, we see people from all communities and really seek to expand that. And we see people who use any types of substances. And I just want to say someone doesn't have to be identified or self-identify as having an addiction or substance use disorder. We see people who are concerned about their substance use, who think that it may be uh, escalating or problematic and want to address that before it becomes more of an issue. Prevention. Yeah. So we see people who use alcohol, opioids, cannabis, benzodiazepines, that's the Valium, Ativan, Lorazepam class of medications. Uh-huh. stimulants, that's Coke, crack, uh, some of the ADD medications, crystal meth. We see some people who use some of the lesser known medications, kind of the party drugs. We don't focus on nicotine and tobacco specifically because there are lots of other resources for that now. Uh-huh. And we don't see what are called process addictions. So gaming, gambling, sexual addictions, we're pretty focused on substance use here. But we use that. And, and I just want to take the opportunity to mention how under-recognized the importance of medication-based therapies for substance uses. A lot of people don't realize that there are medications beyond perhaps just withdrawal that can really make a difference in terms of someone's ability to manage their use along with all of the other supports that are so important. So there must be some sort of overlap between substance use and mental health. Can you speak to that a bit, Dr. Wyman? There's actually a really strong overlap between substance use and mental health, in particular anxiety and mood disorders and also uh, bipolar disorders for women and men, but it appears to be an even stronger association for women than for men. Some of that has to do with having experienced trauma and the way women use substances to cope with the, the distress and the discomfort that arises from trauma. Women are also known, at least with alcohol, to use alcohol more than men to cope with uh, conflict. Um, But I don't think it's as clear outside of the area of alcohol as it is with opioids. The other area that we really see is women being prescribed benzodiazepines by their physicians. So that's Valium, Ativan, Lorazepam type medications to manage anxiety and not recognizing that anxiety might be linked to trauma and other mood disorders, and then those medications being perpetuated, actually resulting in dependence on those medications, which is another huge issue I'm sure we don't have time to talk about today, but it's of really great interest. 
Well, this has been absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I've learned so much in this short period of time, particularly where we've ended. I think, again, as a lay person, you know, a lot of what we know about substance use, we learn through the media and a lot of it is misinformation. It sounds like there's been a lot of advancements in treatment. We need a lot more research and a lot more investment, particularly with sex and gender and making sure that we're taking into account all those intersectionalities so we can have that person first experience for everyone, no matter where they live across the province. But it's so great to see uh, the work that you're doing, Dr. Wyman, here at Women's College Hospital and outside the walls to sort of level the playing field for the folks that are really struggling with substance use and know that there is a place that is focused on their care. Thank you for being here with me today. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity to have this chat. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Mind the Health Gap. If you'd like to learn more, please check out the other episodes of Mind the Health Gap wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at womenscollegehospitalfoundation.com and stay up to date with us on our social media platforms.